This morning we close the book of Hosea. I'll be reading the last chapter, chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all my iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you, the orphan finds mercy. I will hear their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress from me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Thanks, Terry. Good morning. It's really good to be back with you. I had some uh, time I was gone this summer, but it's great to be back here at Cole with you back in the pulpit and uh, finishing up the book of Hosea. I want to begin with a question this morning. What makes a good marriage? One with real love and intimacy. You know, there's a lot of factors, and we obviously aren't going to touch them all, but the foundation of a good marriage, I think, has to begin with trust. You can't develop intimacy with someone else unless there is trust, and trust is built on at least a couple of things, faithfulness and honesty. You see, a good marriage, trust, takes faithfulness, you have to know that your spouse is committed to you and you alone, right? You have to be confident of that, that there are no rivals for your spouse's heart, that they are committed to you first. And honesty. Trust takes honesty. Knowing your spouse is not hiding, not lying, not pretending with you. If you don't have these two things at least, then you can't have trust takes faithfulness and honesty, or else trust breaks down and there can be no real love 
or intimacy in a marriage. Well, this really describes the book of Hosea. You see, God likens himself to a husband who loves Israel, but whose wife, Israel, is unfaithful, dishonest, untrustworthy. Israel has many other lovers. Israel has gone elsewhere, wandered away, rather than trusting in God and depending on him alone. Israel has been dishonest. They pretended to be followers of Yahweh, and yet they've been lying and following other gods. They've been claiming that if we do certain religious things, then God should bless us, and they're just living a lie. So God sent the prophet Hosea to challenge the nation's thinking, to help them understand where they've gone astray, where they are wandering away from God, to expose the cancer in their hearts to make clear their sin and lies that they're living by so God can restore them because he loves them as a loving husband. Hosea spends a long time, and you've endured these last few weeks, pointing out Israel's failures. But it's because God loves them so much that he does so. He does so so that they can deal with those things, bring them to him because he wants to restore them and bless them with true life and true intimacy in him. And folks, you and I, every one of us, we're like Israel. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, as we just sang. We have wayward hearts that look elsewhere than God for life. We have a hard time depending on him. We don't trust him very well. So how do we become restored to him? How do we become to a place of really being in a place of blessing with God? How do we live in right relationship with him? Well, in a word, it's repentance. True, genuine repentance. And Hosea 14, the end of the book, will help us understand how to repent and find God's blessing in our lives. Pray with me. Lord, we come before the word this morning as your people who are a mess. Sometimes it's hard to admit that, but we are, and we need you, and we need to know how to come to you and find life in you. So may this word from Hosea 14 be opened up to us by your Spirit. May our hearts be receptive. May we have big ears to hear from you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it begins in this wonderful first section, verses 1 through 3, describing what God is looking for from Israel. What he's been pointing to in the whole book of Hosea, he's been building up to this section, this passage. If you recall back in chapter 6, it was quite a while ago when we studied through that, but back in chapter 6, Israel came to God, but they came with an insincere repentance. A repentance that basically, paraphrasing, said this, hey, let's go to God, let's press on to know him, and he'll bless us, he'll come to us like the spring rain, he'll pour out his blessings if we just, you know, come to him, do a few sacrifices and 
be somewhat religious, he's obligated to give us what we want. God was not impressed with that, and he continued to try to point out to them the waywardness of their hearts. So he wants a true repentance. He begins this way, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. That word for return is often translated repent. It means to turn away from the direction you're going and turn to a new direction. It is the word for repentance. For you have stumbled, he says, because of your iniquity. Take words with you. What does genuine repentance look like? Well, it begins by words. It begins by coming to God. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean you just go through the motions and just say certain words and that'll satisfy God. No, but the words are necessary, a confession that reveals what's really going on in your heart. Take words with you, he says. Coming to Yahweh and speaking to him in relationship to him. So what is genuine repentance? Is it just asking for forgiveness? Yes, Lord, I shouldn't have gotten mad. Is that repentance? Well, I think it's a lot deeper than that, and I think he reveals it in these verses, verses 2 and 3. I think he reveals three parts to repentance. I think the first part is simply confessing your sinfulness. Confessing your sinfulness. Notice how we begin. Say to him, Hosea says, this is what you need to do, Israel. Bring words and say, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. Take away all iniquity. First, they have to admit there is iniquity in them. Now, this word iniquity is important because in the Hebrew, there's several words for sin. One of them means to basically do the wrong thing, err. Another is to transgress, to cross the line and do something that God told you not to do. But this word, iniquity, is deeper. It means not, I did a bad thing, but it means I am bad. Inside of me is a sinfulness that causes me to err, to go astray, to go the wrong way. It began with Adam and Eve. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What was their real sin there? They ate of the apple, right? But what drove them to that action? It was the serpent convincing them that they could not trust God. Convincing them that God was holding out on them. Did God really say you would die if you ate that fruit? You won't die. He's holding out on you. You can have the knowledge of good and evil. And ever since then, in every human heart has been this tendency to mistrust God. That is our sinfulness, that we don't trust Him well. We don't believe that God's good, and so we look to other things for life other than Him. That's the sinfulness that drives our hearts. And so repentance means facing honestly that tendency to turn away from God and look to other things for life. Just some descriptions of how that can be lived out in our lives from a book called The Last Addiction. The good churchwoman whose eyes are lined with fatigue and whose heart is filled with frenzy, but she still cannot say no. The man who spends hours a day on the Internet, jeopardizing job and family life. 
The person who has no sense of individual self and is consumed by striving to become who, what, and where everyone else needs him to be. The woman with the flawless makeup and wardrobe who does not know how to face her obsession with appearance or where to confess the toll that it is taking on her own soul. The man or woman who longs for a real relationship yet spends every night and weekend in front of the television watching unreal stories. And the man or woman who strays from marriage in serial affairs, whether they are physical or emotional in nature. These are just examples of hearts that are looking to something other than God for life and are bound up. Many of us are represented by these stories, and we could go on and on. There's many other stories. But the point is there's a waywardness about us. In World War II, the Germans built a huge battleship called the Bismarck. That battleship was the fastest ship and the biggest ship in World War II. The Allies were afraid of it. It sank many of the Allied ships. Finally, they decided they had to go after it and try to sink the Bismarck. So they sent their ships after it. The Bismarck continued to do battle and to win the battles. And then a wayward torpedo caught and blew up the rudder on the Bismarck. Suddenly, all the Bismarck could do was go in a big circle. It became a sitting duck. And finally, the Allies were able to sink it. I thought of that story and I thought, you know, that's us. We have a lot going for us. We're made in the image of God and yet we have a waywardness about us where we can't steer straight. And we become sitting ducks for Satan and for the flesh because of the waywardness of our hearts. That's the brokenness of us. That's who we are. And as Nicholas read a little while ago before his prayer, 1 John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. But if we say we have no sin, then we're lying. We're confused. We're believing the world, and it's, it's wrong. Jesus, what did he say when he began his whole Sermon on the Mount? Beautiful passage. What was his very first verse in Matthew 5.3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, that's what confession means. It means beginning with the starting saying, yeah, I really am a mess. And it isn't just I do wrong things, but I have a wrong direction of my heart, Lord, and I don't trust you well. This made me think, though, what helps us face our sinfulness in the Scriptures? What can help us really see the depths of our need for God? Well, in the Bible, there's several ways to do that. One is simply failing miserably, (laughs) like David did when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband Uriah. And he wrote Psalm 51 and he said, Man, I've seen something about my heart I've never seen before. From birth, I've been a sinner. I've had a wayward heart. Peter, when he told Jesus, he said, I will never deny you. And that very night, he denied Jesus three times. And when he caught eyes with Jesus after that, he went away and wept. Paul, when 
He describes in Romans 7, he said, I thought I was doing well. I kept the law. Man, I was a good Pharisee. It was great. And then the 10th commandment came home to me. The 10th one deals with the heart. Thou shalt not covet. And he said, when I decided I wasn't going to covet, I was going to keep all the law, I found in myself covetousness of every kind. He failed miserably. One way to face our sinfulness is to fail miserably. Another is to catch a vision of God's glory. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where it says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory and he caught a vision of the heavenly beings around the throne and what was his, his response? Woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. He caught a vision of God and it made him aware of his own sinfulness. Or Peter did the same. Peter needed, you know, multiple uh, tests and lessons for this. Peter, remember when he was beginning to walk with Jesus and they were in the boat and they'd been fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing, and Jesus said, well, throw the net on the other side of the boat. And Peter's thinking, yeah, right. I know a lot more about fishing than you do. And they began pulling in the nets, and the nets began to tear because there were so many fish. And you remember Peter's response. He said, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He got a glimpse of Jesus' glory, and it overwhelmed him with a sense of his own sinfulness, his own neediness. So we can begin to face our own sinfulness maybe by failing miserably, maybe by catching a glimpse of God's glory, or by hearing God's word. There's plenty of examples of that in the scripture. I just want to highlight one in Nehemiah chapter 8. The people have rebuilt the wall and they're celebrating and they begin reading the word and what happens is they read through God's word, the Torah. It says they wept with shame and guilt because they realized they had not lived up to the law. One of the purposes of God's word, and I know we don't often like it, but one of the major purposes of God's word is to convict us and reveal the waywardness of our own hearts so we can be set free and receive God's blessing and healing. So the first step to repentance Confessing your sinfulness, facing it and confessing it. Secondly, we need to throw ourselves on God's mercy. Throw ourselves on God's mercy. Notice the words that Hosea says we need to bring. Take words with you and say, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. The end of verse 3, for in you the orphan finds mercy. In other words, we need to realize how desperate we are and that the only hope for us is that God will be gracious, that God will be merciful to us. Lord, I'm a mess and I can't fix it. I need your grace. I need your mercy. If I don't get your mercy and grace, I am lost. You see, when we come that way, God responds. Think of the prodigal son who was such a mess He was working with the pigs, feeding the pigs, couldn't even eat the pods, and he was starving to death. 
And he said, you know, I better go home. Maybe my father will be merciful. If nothing else, I can be a slave in his house, but I'd have it better than being here. And he says, I, I've got to rely on my father's mercy. And he goes back and he doesn't expect his father to embrace him, does he? But what happens? His father runs to embrace him and to call him a son. The father runs to embrace us if we will just simply come to him in our brokenness, in the mess that we are, and admit we are desperate for his grace. There's a third part to repentance. It's not just confessing our sin. It's not just throwing ourselves on his mercy. But notice part of the words that we need to bring are a commitment to turn away from the things that we've been depending on other than God. Notice the way he puts it. Verse 3, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God to the work of our hands. Three things he mentions there that Israel has been depending on other than God. First, Assyria, other nations, looking to other nations, making alliances, thinking, oh, we need protection, we're afraid. I've got to deal with my fear by making alliances with others. For us, I think, we depend on other people. Well, God, you're good, but I need so-and-so to love me. I need my spouse to love me. I need my parents. I need my child to respond well. I need friends. I need this. I need that. And we look to other people for life. But Israel is being told to turn away from those other things for life. Secondly, they say, and we will not ride on horses. This is depending on military might, strength to deal with life. See, I think this is a picture for us of anything we depend on other than God. It might be money. It might be a bank account. It might be the things we have, our car, our house. It might be power or position, status. All these things we tend to depend on for life other than God. And part of repentance is saying, I see what I tend to depend on, Lord. I'm sorry. I want to turn away from that. Third, he says, we won't depend on the work of our hands anymore, ourselves, our own ability to try to make life work, our own sense of control in life. One of the things I did this summer, I wanted to spend some time away with the Lord, so I went up in Steens Mountain, where I grew up in eastern Oregon, and I went off by myself, drove on this old back Woods Road that we used to go as kids with my family where no one ever goes. It's an old wagon road to this kind of secret campsite we would go to. And I'm driving there and it just had a thunderstorm and the road had deep ruts. It was an old, rocky, messed up road. And then I thought, I'll be okay if I can avoid the ruts. But it was so muddy, I slid into the ruts I'm trying to get out. I'm trying to steer my way out. I'm sliding all over. I'm hitting bottom. Did several hundred dollars damage to the undercarriage of my car. And I'm going downhill to the campsite, and I finally slide my way to the bottom. And I thought, well, you know, I've got a couple days here, and hopefully the road will dry out so I can get out in a couple days, as long as it doesn't rain. So I started to calculate, okay, how can I work this out? And I had good times with the Lord during the day, but, you know, I was trying to think, okay, um, I can work this out. Okay, so if it starts to rain a little bit, 
then I'm going to throw everything in my car and get out of here as quick as I can because I don't want to get stuck here. And I don't want to do more damage to my car. Well, I started to feel a few raindrops. So I pick up the cooler and I take about four steps toward the car and it pours. And it pours. And it pours. I talked to someone later who had been up on the Steens for 27 years running a camp and they said they'd never seen it rain that hard in 27 years. (laughs) You can imagine what I was doing. Lord, I had a plan here. So nothing I could do except go back to my tent that was blowing over in the storm and try to dry out. You know, The next day, dawn nice and sunny and bright. It was a great day. So I thought, okay, I'll wait this day out. I'll go ahead and spend another night and everything will dry out. It'll be great. That night, you know, I go to bed and I hear rain. Twice in the night, it rained really hard. So my last day, I'm getting up, I'm packing up, and I'm thinking, I I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to make it out of here. And I was thinking, God, what are you doing here? And got my car, drove out, and had absolutely no problem. Didn't slide at all. And God convicted me as I was driving out about my lack of trust and my tendency to control, want to think I can stay safe if I can just figure it all out and control life in a certain way. And that became just an example, a parable of how I approach life where I trust in my control and the work of my hands rather than in God. Folks, we need to face that tendency in ourselves to try to control our own lives and repent Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says this about repentance. Repentance is not an emotion. It is not feeling sorry for your sins, like we often think. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you are wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Abraham Heschel, the great Jewish writer, describes repentance this way. Repentance is an absolute spiritual decision made in truthfulness. Its motivations are remorse for the past and responsibility for the future. The power of repentance causes, and this is the amazing thing, what an insight here, he says, the power of repentance causes time to be created backward and allows recreation of the past to take place. Through the forgiving hand of God, harm and blemish which we have committed against the world and against ourselves will be extinguished and transformed by God into salvation. In chapter 6, when the people had a false repentance, how did God respond? He was angry. Oh, what am I going to do with you, O Ephraim? You're so wayward, so unfaithful. But how does God respond when we just come to him and truly 
in true repentance, genuine repentance, and say, yeah, I'm a mess, I need your grace, and I'm going to turn away and learn to depend on you instead of these other things. How does he respond? Well, we'll see in a minute. It's a wonderful thing. But, but let me say one thing first. Most of us, I think, don't believe that God could love a sinner like us. If I really face what a mess I am and am honest before God about that, no way he could love me. So instead, we hide, we pretend, we try to be good enough or religious enough so that God can accept us. We try to feel bad enough about our sin so God can accept us. And God doesn't want any of that. He says, come at just as you are, the mess that you are. And notice the way God responds in verse 4 through 7. And let me say, this is essentially a love poem. Much of the terminology comes straight out of that love poem of Song of Solomon. It's a beautiful love song that Yahweh is singing over his people, essentially over us. And he begins this way, I will heal their apostasy. In other words, the very part of us, the iniquity, the, the waywardness, he says, I will heal that. I'll begin working to to sanctify you, to change you so you can depend on me if you'll just admit you're a mess. And then he says, I will love them freely. As one commentator says, this word for love is a term of emotional closeness, of delight, attraction, deep fondness. Most of us think, well, yeah, God loves us because he's obligated to, right? Because of the cross. And so he tolerates us now because of what Jesus did. But that's not what the passage says. That's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach He delights in us. He is fond of us. And the cross simply got out of the way what was the barrier between us so that He could freely love us as a husband delighting in his wife. His anger has been dealt with. The cross has taken that away. God longs to give himself to us and to give us a fruitful life, not just tolerate us. But he is fond of you. He delights in you. So there's a beautiful progression here in verses 5 through 7 of what God promises to do in his love. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout. His beauty will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Notice what it says. He'll, He'll be like the dew. He'll pour out his living water on us. And the result will be that we will be changed. You see, the real glory of the gospel is not that God now blesses us and gives us good things, but the glory of the gospel is that we get to become beautiful. He changes us. So he says he pours out his dew and then, and then we begin to take root, it says. We begin to grow and blossom. Our shoots will begin to sprout. And then there'll be beauty like the olive tree and fragrance 
like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. There's such beauty and fragrance that the world around is impacted by what God has done in our lives. That's what we were created for, brothers and sisters, is that God would make us beautiful in him and fragrant in him. And this last phrase I like, his renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. In Israel in those days, if you wanted to say, hey, where's the best place for wine? Lebanon. Like today, you might say Napa Valley. There's not as much wine as there used to be after the earthquake, but, but you think, yeah, there's, that's where you go for really great wine. It's famous for it. And he's saying, you will be famous in your beauty and in your fragrance, just like Napa Valley. As God works in your life, as you simply come to him and let him bless you as he longs to because he loves you. Brothers and sisters, that's God's desire for you and for me. To heal our wayward hearts, to give us a new heart in Christ, to give us the spirit to begin to transform us, to give us real intimacy with him, a love relationship with him. Satan wants to keep us from him because of our guilt and our shame. And the world says, you're not measuring up. But God says, if you come in repentance and simply admit your brokenness to me, I will make you into something beautiful that can impact the world. It's really a reference, I think, to Genesis 12:3, the promise that came to Abraham when God called him and he followed him and he said, I will bless you that you might become a blessing to the world. So the passage ends with a final exhortation. Verse 9, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. He lays out two paths. A path of walking with God, freely admitting your sin, living in repentance, constant repentance. I'm a mess, Lord, but I need your grace. Thank you for it. I turn away from controlling my own life and I depend on you minute by minute, day by day. Or we can choose the path of I've got to stay in control. I want to stay safe and it's the path of stumbling. Those are our choices. To live in his mercy or to stumble through life and continue to make a mess of things. I want to close in a prayer, a wonderful prayer, that's a Puritan prayer. And I want you to consider your own hearts. And if you, in a little while, maybe after the song that we sing in a moment, if you want somebody to pray with you because God's been speaking to your heart this morning about areas you need to confess or you just want prayer, feel free to come up. Maybe some of the ministry leaders can come up and Pray with people who come. But let me close with this prayer. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but I see you in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, 
I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Amen.